Um, before I get started, um, just to kind of set the tone, because this is going to be a, a tough subject, and those three passages were all depressing, um, and they're just they're realistic, although we won't end there. Um, here is a favorite poem of mine, and it kind of constitutes a prayer at the same time. In Genesis 3, the, the story of the fall, Adam and Eve sin for the first time, sin is introduced into the world. In the curses at the end that Tom read, with, with Adam's curse, the, the last of them, the serpent is cursed, the woman is cursed, the man is cursed, is a couple of the, the phrases for Adam is that because he has turned away from God, that thorns and thistles will come up from the ground. That is like the world itself now kind of pushes back against us. The world itself is not the way it's supposed to be. And by the sweat of your face, you'll, you'll eat the, the fruit of the ground. All this um, imagery of frustration of the world not being the way it's supposed to be. One of the great Christian poets was John Donne, and in a poem called Him to God, My God in Sickness, and he thought he was on his deathbed, he ended up recovering, so he didn't die, but he thought he was going to die, is it ends with this, and he compares, as the Apostle Paul does in the New Testament, Adam and Jesus, the first Adam, the last Adam, and he says this, we think that paradise, the Garden of Eden, we think that paradise in Calvary, Christ's cross in Adam's tree stood in one place. And by the way, that's another subject for another time, but I do think the Old Testament itself sees Jerusalem as built where the Garden of Eden was, and Jesus was uh, crucified there. And so it's an ancient Christian tradition that Jesus was crucified where Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree. And so we think that paradise in Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. And I love that prayer. That's a great tombstone in scripture right there. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. At the very least, I would love for that to be our aspiration. So let's pray um, as we get started and we consider the first Adam and in the doctrine of sin. Father, as we consider um, the, the worst part of being human, the worst part of this world, um, what we describe when we use this very little simple word for sin, I pray that you would give us um, the ability to see clearly. I also pray that you would soften our hearts so that we would not resist the truth of the reality that we have become, that we are not what we were created to be. We rebel against you. We turn away from our neighbors. We saw um, in, in Genesis 3 that, that once sin is unleashed and is on the scene, all kinds of blame shifting comes all kinds of acts of shame and guilt, hiding from you, hiding from one another, hiding from ourselves, and then exile that, that we live all of our lives, not in the garden, but east of Eden. We live our lives away from your presence, away from an ideal situation where things are the way they're supposed to be. And I pray that as we consider this reality that of what we have made of your good creation and of what prompted Jesus to become human and to redeem us, I do pray that that ultimately would help us understand you better, that would help us to understand ourselves better, and that we would have a deeper appreciation and gratitude, joy, and love for your grace, and that we would be all the more inclined to be gracious towards others who are sinners mm -hmm. um, because we have tasted your graciousness to us. And so help us to not skip this, help us to not skip over this, to ignore it, to deny it. I pray that your spirit would, would bring conviction today, but also finally take us to the last Adam. And that as the first Adam's sweat surrounds our face, that the last Adam's blood our soul would embrace. I pray that that would be true for each of that, for each of us. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name.
Amen. So a couple of things. One is that as you came in, maybe you got a copy of it. If not, you can grab it afterwards. I've been meaning to do this for a while. Um, since this is a series called The Grand of Faith, and every week we do a vocab word, um, I'm putting together a list of suggested reading. If you want to pursue any of these topics in the future, and so I have a one-page handout that if you didn't get it, it's in the back, front and back. And what it does is it goes through, um, today is, I think, like the eighth overall kind of word. Um, once or twice, we've, we've turned away from the series and done something else. The next couple of weeks, image of God, idolatry. And, and just a couple of things. One is that the first one listed under each category is the one I would encourage you to start with. It's the one that I would most recommend in that category. And just, you know, I don't want to put any false guilt on anybody. You might never read any of these. You might read all of these in the next 20 years. Some of you will read a couple of them, not most of them. That's okay. But, but just at the very least, if there's a topic that you want to dig into more, uh, at the very least, I want to be able to provide resources for you. And, and just a couple of other things. One is that I have not yet done. I'm going to keep updating this as we go. Eventually, we'll either put it on our website or something like that. Um, but for each category, I've made it my aspiration. So far, I've fallen short in one, maybe two of the categories. But in each category, I've made it my aspiration to have at least one woman and one person of color represented here. And so, for instance, some of the first category, grammar of faith, Felford Jones, is a great female theologian. Uh, she used to be at Wheaton, now she's at, I think, Northern Seminary. And, uh, and Charles Octavia Booth was a great African-American pastor here in America. And so trying to get, you know, just some, uh, some diversity in terms of perspectives that are represented here. In general, I would commend each of these. They're ones that I have found very helpful. And so anyway, if this is something that you want to explore your faith more, these would be good starting places. And again, would especially commend the first one under each category as probably the best entry point to it. And with that said, let me um, draw your attention to, to two things in particular. Um, you don't have to read theology books to be a faithful Christian. If you read a lot of theology books, there is no correlation between that and being a faithful Christian necessarily. Some of the worst Christians I've met are people who've read tens of thousands of pages. Um, I hope I'm not one of them, but maybe I am. Um, but all things being equal, I do think it's it's helpful for Christians to explore their faith and to really understand. And in an overall one that both connects to our topic today, sin, but it's honestly like a top five book for me. Is if any of you came up and said, Nick, I want to understand Christianity better, where should I start? This would be one of the first five things I would recommend. Even if you've been a Christian for 20 years and you've read a lot, if you have not read this, I would encourage you to. Albert Walter's Creation Regained. Biblical Basics for a Reformation Worldview. It's under the first category, and basically it's creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and it's so helpful in terms of communicating the, the, the logic, the beauty of the Christian faith. And then here's another thing, both for, for sin itself, but also if you've ever spent time trying to read Christian books, this is not distinctive to Christian books. It's true of publishing in general. Hannah, Mary Sue, I know that you will affirm this. 99.9% .9 of what gets published is a waste of time. That's also true in the Christian world. Most of what you'll find in a Christian bookstore is a waste of your time, and it's not worth the, uh, the paper it's printed on. And one of the many ways in which that's true is that theologians tend to be terrible writers. They tend to just bore you to death. They tend to, um, the way they write, it's just so far removed from the beauty and the grandeur of the object. And of all subjects that you would expect it to not be true, it's this one. But one of the best written books of theology I have ever read is not the way it's supposed to be, a breviary of sin, like Cornelius Plantica. It is actually like 
great literature in and of itself. It's very well written, and it's not at all a depressing book, even though it's incredibly insightful. So on this topic in particular, I would commend Cornelius Plantinga, not the way it's supposed to be, which is a great description of the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin teaches us that we are not the way we are supposed to be. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so what we're going to do is kind of look at each of these three passages briefly that were read. Genesis 3, we'll start there. We'll go to Jeremiah 4, Romans 3. Um, in this uh, sermon series, the, the grammar of faith, we're taking vocab words, trying to define them. Today, it's sin, very short word, very simple word. Trying to talk about grammar, how do you use it in the Christian life? And syntax, how does it connect to other things? And I read this this week. Some of you might know a writer named Wendell Berry, who I think slowly has become a Christian in his life, um, but, but originally was more just, uh, just kind of a, a classic conservative, not politically, but in the sense of like, he's a farmer in Kentucky, and he's all about kind of like agrarian practices and getting back to the land, and, and he has a big focus on creation, and he's got a great short essay that you can read in five minutes, it's online, you can find it, you Google it, called In Distrust of the Movements. And when she talks about how disillusioned he's become with various movements on the right and the left in his life, and, and here's one of his critiques of what happens when people plan down the movements that they perceive to be have, have the right answer, and everybody else is wrong and we're right. He says, here's one of the things that tends to do, and this is a great, I think, description of why we're doing this series. It says this, people in movements too easily become unable to mean their own language. The worst danger may be that a movement will lose its language either to its own confusion about meaning and practice or to preemption by its enemies and how its enemies use its language. Once we allow our language to mean anything that anybody wants it to mean, it becomes impossible for us to mean what we say. When the word homemade ceases to mean neither more nor less than made at home, then it means anything, which is to say that it means nothing. The use of such words now requires the most exacting control of context and the use immediately of illustrative examples. And I would just say when it comes to sin, whether you grow up in the church or not, I think sin is one of those words that is so easy for it to either mean nothing or to be so abstract that you don't actually know how it applies to life. And so what I hope to do in the next few minutes is to make sin concrete, to make it so it's not vague and ambiguous, but also to have the right proportionality. If you were here last week, um, the reason I did a sermon on creation before we did sin is I argued that from a very real perspective, the doctrine of creation is more important than the doctrine of sin or salvation. Because ultimately, sin is just uncreation, decreation, and salvation is just recreation. So you can't start with sin and understand it. That's one of the most crucial things. You have to start with creation. And so Scott McKnight, um, a, a pastor, a theologian, I like, says that in American Christianity, often the gospel starts with Genesis 3. You're a sinner and you deserve to go to hell. And it ends in Revelation 20. Because of Jesus, you get to skip the last judgment and not go to hell. But the reality is, is that the, the, the story of, of, of the gospel begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and it ends with recreation in a new world. Not salvation from sin negatively, but reinstitution to our created humanity and bearing the image of God. So with sin, it is particularly easy to, to lose our bearings and to get the wrong sense of proportionality. And so before I say anything positively about sin in the sense of what it means, let me first just say, here's a couple of things that we should not think of when we think about sin. When we're thinking about sin, we should not think about it as having some direct, obvious connection to our body. 
sin, the, the more you're focused on your embodiment, the more you enjoy things with your body in the physical world, that has nothing to do with the degree to which sin has captivated you or not. That, that in um, a lot of Western culture, there's a long heritage of associating sin with the physical body and physical desires in the physical world. Sin has nothing to do in and of itself with our embodiment or with our bodies. Um, it's not until after sin comes into the picture that Adam and Eve begin to feel shame about their bodies, and their bodies play no direct role in the rise of sin. And so the body is impacted by sin. Our embodiment is impacted by sin. The sin has nothing to do with our embodiment directly. Another one, and often connected, is desire. Sin is not the same thing. Sin is not sin because you have desire. It's not to say that if we didn't have sin, therefore we wouldn't have desire. Desire itself is good. Desire itself, we should not associate with sin or with evil in any direct way. Desire is co-opted by, it, it's preempted by sin, absolutely, but sin has nothing to do with desire per se. That's not what makes it sinful. We had desires before the fall. We will have desires in the world to come. We had bodies before the fall. We will have bodies and we will live in a physical world after God redeems it. None of these things are directly connected to sin. Much, much more complicated um, is this, is sin has nothing to do in and of itself with culture. Um, if you grew up in a very conservative environment, there was perhaps a sense you got from the adults around you that the culture out there in the world is the locus of sin and that everything cultural kind of goes the wrong direction, whether it's music, whether it's money, whether it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there's just anything out there outside of the church that we call culture is contaminated by sin, just is itself sinful. And, and I wanted to say this last week, so I'll say it here at the beginning. Here is something that, that is such a, it's such a delicate balance that I would commend it to you. Um, to go back to creation, um, many Christians, even, even strong Christians, have a, a hard time seeing anything in the world as how God created it, as the way it's supposed to be objectively. That, that in the modern world, we often have a strong sense of everything is sociologically constructed, everything is culture, everything is subjectively because human beings have made it that way, that there's no direct access to creation. There's a sense in which that's true. So here's a two-pronged kind of balancing statement I encourage you to think about. On the one hand, human beings never have access to creation except as it's already been dressed up in the clothes of a particular culture. That is, if you're Korean, if you are African, if you are Latino, your first experience of creation was not some direct naked apprehension of it, but it was the way that Koreans had already dressed it up. It was the way that Latinos had already dressed up. We never access or perceive creation except as it is already dressed up in culture. Now, our culture tends to get that pretty well, that everything is sociologically constructed. On the other hand, here's something that I think our culture is not very aware of. It is also true at the same time that you will never experience any culture except as a response that is either faithful or rebellious to God's creational designs. Now, that's not to say that some cultures we look at and say that's all sinful. It is certainly not to say that we look at any culture and say that's all good. It is to say that every culture in the history of the world is a mixture of humanity and dignity and sinfulness and depravity. Um, a lot of missiologists would say, and I think this is right, that when the gospel comes to any culture in the history of the world, it's always going to say yes in affirming certain things in that culture, and it's going to say certain things of no to that culture. But here's the important part, is there's nothing about culture, there's nothing about music, 
There's nothing about money. There's nothing about politics. There's nothing about the way people dress that in and of itself, you point to and say, see, there's proof of sin. That culture itself is what human beings were supposed to do with the world. We were supposed to unfold its potential into culture. And so associating sin with culture too strongly is a mistake. And, and to be honest, and a lot of you know this, um, when Christianity gets strongly identified with a culture, say Western culture, say European culture, it often becomes very difficult for Christians in that culture not to see their culture itself as the locus of God's redemption and other cultures as the locus of sin. And that is 100% mistaken. That is 100% mistaken. Um, culture in and of itself is good and yet compromised by sin, but culture itself has nothing to do with sin. And then last thing, and this comes out of the affirmation that creation is good, is sin is not located in a particular part of creation. As much as I'm inclined to say, if you want to see sin, look at politics. I, I am inclined to say that, given my experience. <laughs> it's not true that politics is sinful. It's not true that sex is sinful. It's not true that money is sinful. It's not true that recreation and music and art and culture are sinful. All of these are good. And so here's what John Calvin says in its institutes. Yes, we do teach that all human desires are finally evil and we charge them with sin, but not because they are natural, but because they are inordinate. That is, we desire things too much into the exclusion of God and our neighbor. But the things we desire are never in themselves sinful. And so it's interesting with this one, especially, I tend to try to hold on to a lot of definitions that people give of sin. Some of them are helpful. I'm going to read a couple for you to try to uh, clear away some of the abstraction, but ultimately they all fall short. Um, Wendell Berry says in one place, sin is any act or thought that divides us from God or our neighbors. It's a very basic definition. J.I. Packer, following a famous confession of faith called the Westminster Confession, says sin may be comprehensively defined as a lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, or mode of existence. And one of the things he's trying to do there is say, like, sin doesn't just get into part of us. It gets into every part of us. Francis Spufford is a British novelist who also happens to be a Christian. And here's a, a great book, whether it's you're struggling with the Christian faith and maybe a bit disenchanted with it or not sure whether you believe it, or maybe you want to, you know, have something to have a conversation with your friends. One of the best books in the last 10 or 15 years, I think, for engaging the average non-Christian in our culture is Francis Spufford's book, Apologetic. Just so you know, he curses a lot in this book. Um, and here's his definition of sin. I'm not going to say it out loud. He actually says it out loud. I'm just going to abbreviate it. It says, sin is the universal human propensity to F things up. Everybody should be able to look around and be like, that's a quality we all share. You give people enough time and enough space, we all screw up our lives and we all screw up other people's lives. That is a universal propensity we have. John Stott says, the essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God, just as the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for human beings. That one of the things the serpent says to Adam and Eve is, guys should eat this because when you do, you will be like God. You'll get to play his role in the world. And then Cornelius Plantinga in this great book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, I'm going to lean into this definition in the next few minutes. It says, sin is the turning of our loyalty, our energy, and our desire away from God 
and God's projects in the world. It is the diversion of construction materials that are there for the city of God to be used for side projects of our own, often accompanied by jerry-built ideologies that seek to justify the diversion. It's a great definition. That using the resources, the time, the energy, the loyalty that God has given us to build the city of God for him and for our neighbor, and instead focusing it on side projects. One of the most simple ways to think about sin is that if Christianity is true, this is the disease underneath every other symptom. And we have a lot of med students in here, the future doctors in here. You know that if somebody is sick and if all you do is treat symptoms, you are wasting your time. That underneath every other symptom of what goes wrong in the world, according to the Christian faith, is sin. Put it this way, this is the main thing that's wrong with each one of you. This is the main thing that is wrong with me. As Cornelius Planicus says in this great book, sin, according to scripture, is the longest running of all human emergencies. This is the great human emergency in the world. There's a famous story that some of you probably heard. G.K. Chesterton, a British Christian in the early 1900s, was uh, very well respected or, or at least very well known and well regarded as a writer and as a thinker and as a public debater, even outside of the church. And the Times of London, at one point in the early 1900s, um, the, the editorial staff of the Times just asked all these famous philosophers and politicians and leaders to send in a short answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And the communists send in one answer and the capitalists send in another answer. And conservatives send in one answer, liberals send in another answer. G.K. Chesterton responds and here's his response. What is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton writes and he says, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And I think that's a good answer. I would just expand it to we are. We are what's wrong with the world. If you remember last week in Psalm 104, everything else in creation, even predatory animals, even scary sea creatures, even the night, even exploding volcanoes, even earth-shattering earthquakes have a place in creation. The one thing the psalmist looks at and says, Lord, get rid of that, is human wickedness, is human sin. It's the one thing that is out of place in creation. And so to flesh out why I did creation last week before we did, did sin, and, and, and why you can't understand sin, Genesis 3, and, and go ahead and turn to Genesis 3, let's look at that for a few minutes, unless you understand Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the doctrine of creation. This is from Cornelius Planica, this is his language. In the Hebrew uh, scriptures and in the Jewish tradition, and all of you have heard this word, it's a Hebrew word. The, the state of affairs at the end of Genesis 1 and 2 is often called shalom, which in English is often translated peace, but is a really bad translation of shalom. Shalom, as, as Cornelius Planica says, is universal human flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's shalom is the way the world is supposed to be. Everything is good. Everything is in harmony. Everything is in tune. And so Cornelius Planica says this, the webbing together of God human beings in all of creation, justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal human flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights to have a home. Shalom, in other words, the way things ought to be. 
in biblical thinking, we can never understand either shalom, creation, or sin apart from reference to God. Sin is finally a religious concept, not just a moral or ethical one. For example, when we are thinking like Christians, we view a shopkeeper who defrauds his customer not merely as an instance of lawlessness, but also of faithlessness. And we think of the fraud as faithless not only to the customer, but also to God. Criminal and moral misadventures qualify as sin because they offend and betray God as well as our neighbor. Sin is not only the breaking of the law, but it's also the breaking of covenant with one's creator. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parents and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. All sin has first and finally a Godward force. So let us say that a sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and hurts our neighbor and deserves blame. Let us add this position to commit sins also displeases God, hurts our neighbor and deserves blame. And, and there, let us therefore use the word sin to refer to all such instances of both such acts and dispositions. And here's such a great line. Sin is a culpable and personal affront, affront to a personal God in some Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. God is, after all, not arbitrarily offended. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but even more importantly, because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom, and therefore he is against sin. In fact, we may safely describe sin as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, morally, spiritually, or otherwise. And here's the best definition I've ever heard. Here's a sentence. In short, sin, sin is culpable shalom breaking. Sin is culpable shalom breaking. It's taking the state of affairs and, and being a vandal with respect to it. It's graffitiing God's creation, so to speak, as a metaphor. It is ruining the goodness of the world. In this book um, that I showed you, Creation Regain, the writer makes a distinction between creation and sin in which he uses these two categories, structure and direction. He says the structure of anything God has created is always good. The only thing Christians finally have to say about sex and the body and money and music and male and female and animals time and space and everything else is created is that it's good. And anytime we try to identify a structure that God has created as itself problematic, we're actually going astray in the Christian story. Instead, what's problematic is the direction that we take these structures. And so what we do with sex, what we do with money, what we do with animals, what we do with space and time, what we do with our free time, the direction in which we take it. And so Miroslav won't use this basic illustration. If you take a little jar of water, the water is good. There's the creational stuff. And if you drop a couple of drops of ink in it, everything gets disturbed. The whole thing of water looks like it's now inky, but the reality is the water is still there. The water is still good. And yet the ink has gotten into everything and you can't disentangle it anymore. And that's what sin does in this world. Um, it just gets inside of everything. And so going to Genesis, 
Um, because the story is so familiar, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to walk through many of the details, but Christians and Jews consider this the introduction of sin into the world. In Genesis 3, the fall, there's all kinds of blame shifting. There's the initial question from the serpent, did God really say, or God's authority, God's um, trustworthiness is called into doubt. There is the, in a, Josh didn't read this passage in Romans, but earlier in Romans 1, where Paul is talking about sin for three chapters to open Romans, he alludes to this, that in Genesis 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the Apostle Paul, much, much later in the story, will say, summarizing that story, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, someday, Lord willing, I'll do a whole sermon just on that because it's such an important part of the story. I'll just say this. It, it tends to bother us modern people that God says you can eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you can't eat. I'll just say a couple of things. One is God is not saying that he wants them to be idiot children forever. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil is a symbol for wisdom. And at the end of Romans 3, which we'll get to in a few minutes, the final statement that Josh read in, in the litany of Old Testament quotations, and I think not just the last, but really the summary of everything Paul says there, is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Seeking to eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and, wisdom, of good and evil apart from God and in defiance of his commandment is a metaphor for saying, when we seek to define and respond to good and evil, apart from the commands of our creator, that that's the essence of sin. It's autonomy, it's independence, it's putting our own desires, our own perspective at the center of everything. And it leads to breakdown between the man and the woman, between humans and their environment, between humans and God. Everything begins to go wrong. And so in Genesis, if you keep your, um, if you're there, we need to notice how in the next couple of chapters, this just becomes the great theme that unfolds. In chapter four, Cain and Abel come on the scene. And in verse seven, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Right away with Cain, the main enemy is that sin is crouching at the door and it wants dominion over you. And this is the main thing, Cain, that you need to be focused on. In chapter six, at the very beginning of the flood story with Noah, why does God regret making human beings? Why does he come in judgment? Even though through Noah, he redeems the world. Because in verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of human beings was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Unfolding the story of Genesis 3. At the back end of the flood story in Genesis 8, and then we'll move on. Genesis 8, verse 21. Noah, after the flood, makes a burnt offering to God. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, verse 21 of chapter 8, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humans, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so in the early chapters of Genesis, we get a strong affirmation that sin is spreading and that it is the main danger, both to us and to God's purposes in creation. So let me say two things about sin from Genesis 3, and we'll move on to 
uh, Jeremiah 4. Here's the first thing that I want to say about sin with respect to just making it hopefully not abstract, is that sin in a Christian perspective is by definition unnatural. Sin is unnatural. And I mean that in two different ways. The first way I mean that is that quite literally, it is against the purpose that God made the world. It, it goes against the grain of creation. Um, I often like to say this. I'll come back at the end when we get to the Holy Spirit and another point in the series, when we get to the good stuff later on in the series, I'll talk about it, is the definition of sin and what it does to us is that it makes us weirdos. It makes us weirdos. Somebody who looks at his job and looks at the money he can get from his job and is not only going to ignore his spouse and his children, not only ignore his neighbors, but even throw them under the bus for the sake of this, is a weirdo. That's weirdo stuff. Sin makes us weirdos. It's, it's anti-normative. It turns us against what's natural, but it's also unnatural in the sense that, that it goes against the state of our natural flourishing. So sin goes against the grain of creation. And following Plantiga, I've already said this, but sin, according to Genesis 3, is vandalism against shalom. It just takes a huge spray can to what God did in creation and just writes graffiti all over it and begins to ruin it. One of the great myths of our culture is that as long as two people are consenting, that's all that matters. The reality is that against our intentions, apart from our intentions, sin harms others. It harms the world. It dishonors God. And so we see in Genesis 3 that it seeps into everything. Go to Gen uh, Jeremiah 4, which is our second passage that Sandra read. And I was wondering how many of you noticed, especially if you were here last week, if you noticed the connections with Genesis 1. Sandra read this. Wayna knows now she read verses 1 through 2 in Jeremiah 4, which are positive. And then she read from verses uh, 19 down to 28, which are very negative. And I just want you to notice here's why I had her read both of these sections. The, both of them are if-then statements logically. If human beings do this, then this will happen. In verses 1 and 2, it's this. If, oh Israel, you return to the Lord... If you remove detestable things from my presence, if you don't waver and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, then the result of that obedience of God's people will be that all the nations, all the Gentiles shall bless themselves in him and in him they shall glory. It's again for a later part in the series. But if sin defaces everything in creation, obedience actually blesses other people. Obedience just doesn't bless us. It doesn't just honor God. It actually heals and blesses the rest of creation. But I want you to notice in verses 19 and following, the people of God, as is so often true, they're not actually obeying. They're disobeying. And God says in verse 22, my people are foolish. They don't even know me. They're stupid children. They have no understanding. They're wise, but only in doing evil. But how to do good, they do not know. That is that sin is dominating the people of God. And I want you to notice how profound the follow-up. I looked on the earth. Here's the rule. If people are like that, if, if God's people turn away from him, from good to evil, from obedience to disobedience, then the result is you look on the earth and behold, it was formless and void. Genesis 1-2. Do you remember that last week? That at the beginning of the creation story, everything is formless and void. And then God creates on days one through three, a world that has shape, day and night. 
sea and land, and it's no longer shapeless. Now it has shape, and on days four through six, it creates all these inhabitants, no longer empty, it's no longer void. When human beings commit sin, according to Jeremiah 4, we take creation back to what it was before God made it the way it was, that we undo it, that we unravel the fabric of it, that we unleash chaos back into the world, and God's good order and form becomes undone, quite literally, with climate change today, with environmental disaster, quite literally, we harm other inhabitants so that the inhabitants flee away. And every time in verses 23 and following, Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth and behold, is the same phrase from Genesis 1, God looked and he saw, behold, it was good. Here Jeremiah looks and as human beings sin and as they sin, this is the fabric of the six days of creation are being unwound and the world is not the way it's supposed to be anymore. And so here's another thing that I want to say about sin. And this one also kind of has a twofold um, dynamic to it, that sin, if you understand it, is profoundly uncreative. Sin is uncreative. And I mean that both objectively and subjectively. I mean that sin, as we engage in it, undoes what God has already done in creation. It undoes it. There is a great passage that unfortunately is not nearly well known enough because it's surrounded in a lot of form and, and kind of background that we don't understand. But in Psalm 82, God summons all the pagan gods of the other cultures into his presence. And he judges them because in all of these cultures, in a fallen world, they all, the, the strong, the powerful, the status quo, they all prioritize their own desires, their own power. And so in every culture in the history of the world, the poor have been oppressed. In every culture, women have been misused by men. In every culture, those with power use it in a way that doesn't bless, but actually curses those without power. And God brings all of these people, all of these judges of power into his presence. And there's a line in Psalm 82 that the foundations of the earth are tottering and coming undone. That injustice literally makes the world unbearable to live. It unravels the world. And so sin is uncreative. And that it actually impacts creation and, and brings it back to this more primal state of still being formless and void. It uncreates shalom. It, it just undoes creation. But I would also say sin is uncreative subjectively and that it's boring. It is the most uncreative thing human beings can engage in. Sin is never something that you're creating. It's never something that you're creative in. It's always taking the stuff that God made and just spray painting it with graffiti. That's the essence of uncreative. And so sin is ultimately uncreative. It is ultimately boring. It ultimately um, takes us away from our task, from our vocation that God has given us. And so I encourage you to pay attention to that dynamic in your own life, even to expect that when I turn away from God and sin, I'm harming myself, I'm harming others, I'm harming the world that I live in, and I'm actually being uncreative. I'm actually um, leaning into something monotonous and into something more. So let's go to Romans 3, which is probably the most famous passage on sin, maybe other than Genesis 3. And I want you to notice something that's very easy to miss in this passage that Josh read, verses 9 through 20. Paul just unleashes a long litany of Old Testament quotations. Probably in your Bible, you can see that it's said as poetry. Everything he says from verse 10 to verse 18 is a quotation from about a dozen Old Testament passages. And because of that, it can seem like Paul is just piling up. He's not really making any point other than that people are sinful and that they suck. But he's actually being a little more specific than that. And so I want you to notice there are two sections in verses 10 through 18. 
The first section is 10 through 12. Do you notice the theme? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, we have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Those three verses make one point, that sin is universal in its spread. That we don't look around the room and say, where are the sinners and where are the non-sinners? That this infects everybody. That no one is exempt from sin. One of the things we'll talk about in a second at the end is there's something actually profoundly humanizing and humbling about knowing that this is one of the things, along with being created in the image of God, that you share with everyone. In every socioeconomic status, every gender, every race, every culture, every personality type, this is something we all have in common. Every ideology ultimately encourages us to split up the world into the good guys and the bad guys, the people who do the right things and the people who do the wrong things. That's already the wrong category. According to Romans 3, sin is universal in its spread, including with Christians. Ideology doesn't get you out of it. Education doesn't get you out of it. Religion doesn't get you out of it. There is nothing you can do to avoid the, the label sinner. If you understand the Christian faith and notice that in the next verses might seem like Paul is just still piling it up or maybe just being, you know, colorful and metaphorical, but he's making a slightly different point in verses 13 through 18. Their throat, who's there? All of us. No, not one. All of us turn aside. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. There's vandalism of shalom. In the way of peace they have not known before their eyes. There's no fear of God. If the first part makes the point that all of us are complicit in sin, the second point is even more radical. And it makes the further deduction, every part of every one of us is compromised by sin. Not just your thinking, but your feeling. Not just your feeling, but your choosing. Not just this area of your life, your sex life, but also what you do with money. Not just the way you were over here, but the way you were there. Every single part of every single one of us is dominated by sin. I'm not a big fan overall of this phrase, if only because it is so liable to being misunderstood. This is what the Protestant reformers meant by the doctrine of total depravity. They did not mean by that what's often understood, which is why I tend not to use it, that human beings are as bad as they possibly could be. No human being has ever been as bad as he or she could be. But it is a way of saying that all of us and every part of us is now going in the direction away from God. That you can't look as a Christian at any area of your life and give yourself an imprimatur. Yeah, this part over here is broken, this part over here, but this part over here, God's not allowed to say anything because this part's good over here. There is no part of us, like water, that ink has been dropped into. It has gotten into every nook and cranny of our lives. It is before and underneath your perception. It is before and underneath your choosing and your willing. It is before and underneath the way you feel. Sin is profoundly disorienting. If the doctrine of creation last week is there in the Christian story to help us get our bearings, the doctrine of sin tells us we have lost our bearings. You don't even know which way is up and which way is down. Which way is west and which way is east? You cannot trust anything in your culture. You cannot trust anything in your instincts. You cannot trust anything that is out there to represent what God wants it to be in and of itself. That is a really profound and 
helpless thing. And so sin reminds us that apart from Jesus, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are lost. In Paul's language in Ephesians, we're not sick, we're not wounded, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we're under judgment. To put it this way, and this is something that almost every ideology actively resists, no matter what you believe, no matter what you do, no matter how you spend your time and your energy in your life, there is an inevitable, undeniable, and, and unavoidable tragic dimension to human life in the world. And if you think you can overcome it by ideology or by education or by effort, we are profoundly misunderstanding the state of affairs we live in. G.K. Chesterton, in his usual clever way of putting it, says, okay, this is the point where almost everybody in history, Western, Eastern, ancient, modern, is like Christianity is inhumane. Christianity is depressing. Christianity is toxic. Christianity um, actually is like the opposite of mental health. It just encourages us to hate ourselves, to look down on ourselves. And here's one of the things Chesterton says. Christianity is actually the opposite in its effect. Not in spite of, but because of this universal understanding of sin. Chesterton says in his book, Orthodoxy, Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea, such as original sin, that we're all sinful from the beginning, even before we start making choices, even before our consciousness. But when we wait for the results of Christianity in any given culture, any given historical epoch, they are pathos, empathy, and brotherhood, and a thunder of laughter and pity, for only with original sin can we at the same time pity the beggar and distrust the king. And a culture that doesn't pity beggars and it doesn't distrust kings is a culture that doesn't know what's going on in the world. That people ought to pity beggars and they ought to distrust kings. <laughs> Reinhold Bieber, who up near Columbia at Union Theological Seminary during the World War II era, was maybe the most influential American theologian of the first half of the 20th century. And probably a lot of you have heard this, even if you don't know what comes from Bieber. He says, the doctrine of universal sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. That you're going against the evidence if you deny it. You're going against the evidence. Blaise Pascal, you read in 10th or 11th grade geometry class, Pascal's theorem, but he was also a great theologian in the Catholic Church, said, it is an astonishing thing, however, that the mystery which is farthest removed from our knowledge, the mystery that each of us comes into the world already sinful, is something that without which we can have no true knowledge of ourselves. Nothing to be sure is more of a shock to us than such a doctrine. And yet without this claim, without this mystery, which is the most in incomprehensible of all, bothers us the most, we should be incomprehensible to ourselves. The tangled knot of our condition acquired its twists and turns in that abyss of sin so that humans are more inconceivable without the mystery of sin than the mystery is to human beings. Just Pascal saying, if you don't know this about yourself, you do not know yourself. You are profoundly deluded about how you are walking through the world. Pascal says in another place next week, just so you know, we're going to go to image of God, positive. Last week we did creation, positive. Pascal says, when you start with creation and the image of God, then you go to the fall, sin in Genesis 3, that in, 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 even in the church, different Christian groups can go veer off one side or the, the other. But if you understand the story we're in, if you understand the Christian faith, then you know Pascal says that human beings are simultaneously the glory and the garbage of the universe. Human beings are simultaneously the glory 
and the garbage of the universe. A lot of ideologies veer off to human beings are the problem in the world. That's all to say about them. Some veer off to we're amazing, but you have to actually say both of those things because they're both true together. Aslan and Prince Caspian, well, C.S. Lewis through Aslan, says this to the kids who come into the world. You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. And so honor and shame is part of being a human being. And so in Romans 3, no fear of God before our eyes, every one of us, every part of us. And so two of the great images in the Jewish and Christian tradition for sin from Romans 3 is that sin is a burden on us. It's a power that we are enslaved to and that we cannot extricate ourselves from. If you have ever been in a family relationship, a romantic relationship, a work relationship where you brought out the worst of somebody else and they brought the worst out of you, you just know that there are certain moments that you get so frustrated with yourself and you just realize that like, I can't not be this. And that's not an excuse, but you just know like it is not, it is not within my grasp through willpower, through education, through moral improvement to not be problematic to not be toxic, to not be broken, that sin is like a burden. It is like a power that enslaves us. And sin is also like a debt. Every time we sin, we do something to the world, we do something to God, we do something to one another that needs to be rectified and that can't just be moved off. It's like a debt. Every single one of us is in the red because of sin. Every single one of us needs to not just get better, it needs to account for all the vandalism in our past. And so sin is also a debt that needs to be paid, that needs to be accounted for. And so, so much more we could talk about, but let me, let me just connect this to some other things. Sin is never to be talked about for its own sake. It's certainly not the last word. It's not even the first word. Um, and so let me connect it to a couple of other things here at the end. In Galatians 4, when Paul says that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, and he sent forth his spirit. You cannot understand why Jesus became human, as Anselm said. You can't understand why God poured out the spirit at Pentecost if you do not understand sin. That both Jesus and the spirit have a mission at which sin is at the center of it. They are both emergency responses to the problem of sin. Herman Bobbing, the, the famous Dutch Reformed theologian, said the essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the good creation of the Father ruined by human sin, is now being restored in the death and resurrection of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. This is the story. This is why Jesus came. This is why the Spirit was poured out. To put it this way, Jesus came to bear the penalty of sin, and the Spirit came to break the power of sin in our lives. And you will not understand the role of Jesus or the role of the Spirit if you do not understand sin. Here's the most simple way I put it, um, and I think it's such a summary of the Christian story, is you need to know these two things about the world you live in if you're a Christian. Sin makes you a weirdo, and Jesus and the Spirit came to make you normal again. Sin makes us weirdos, and Jesus took on human flesh, and the Spirit was poured out to make us normal again. But that's the, the whole story. A second thing is that, and this is what... Um, Chesterton was saying, this is why we do confession of sin. If you understand that sin is not the first word, it's not the last word, the goodness of creation and the love of God is before it, 
the salvation, the redemption of Jesus is on the other side, and all of us are indicted by it, and Jesus came for all of us, there's something that understanding your own sinfulness and understanding the grace that God shows to you and everyone else, someone who as a Christian really embraces and, and doesn't resist their deep problematic sinfulness is somebody who in general is going to be more humble, more gentle, and more empathetic with other human beings who struggle. That there's something about the denial of this in yourself that you are setting yourself up to be a Pharisee. You are setting yourself up to be a judge. You are setting yourself up to look down at other human beings who struggle in ways that you don't. Um, and then the last one, and this is why we do it every single week, and I would just encourage you, whether you've been coming for a while, and you know we confess our sins during the service every week, I would just encourage you, as a Christian, just as a human being, make it one of your goals to get good at confession, repentance, and forgiveness. You want to have a good marriage? Get good at repentance. You want to have good friendships? Get good at confession. You want to be a good employee or employer? Be good at forgiveness. Um, the reality is that we cannot walk well in this world without either repenting of our own sin to others or happily willing to forgive the sins of others when they repent, when they confess, when they are willing to, to acknowledge this and to give it up. And so Cornelius Plantinga, at the very end of this beautiful book, says this, evil rolls across the ages, but so does good. Good has its own momentum. Corruption never wholly succeeds. Even blasphemers acknowledge God. Creation is stronger than sin and grace stronger still. Creation and grace are anvils that have worn out a lot of hammers. It's a great line. To speak of sin itself, to speak of it apart from the realities of creation and redemption is to forget the resolve of God. God wants shalom and is willing to pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not nearly as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Moreover, to speak of sin by itself is to misunderstand its nature. Sin is only a parasite, a vandal, a spoiler, it's uncreative, it's boring, it's unnatural. Sinful life is a partly depressing, partly ludicrous caricature of genuine human life. To concentrate on our rebellion, defection, and folly, to say to the world, I have some bad news, and I also have some more bad news, is to forget that the center of the Christian religion is not our sin, but our Savior. To speak of sin without grace is to minimize the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, and the hope of shalom. And then he says this, but, but, to speak of grace without sin is surely no better. Mm -hmm. To do this is to trivialize the cross of Jesus Christ, to skate past all the struggling by good people down the ages, to forgive accept and rehabilitate sinners, including themselves, and therefore to cheapen the grace of God that always comes to us with blood on it. What had we thought the ripping and writhing on, Gol Gol on Golgotha on Good Friday were actually about? To speak of grace without looking squarely at these realities, without painfully and honest acknowledgement of our own sin and its effects is to shrink grace down to a mere embellishment of the music of creation, to shrink it down quite literally to a mere grace note. In short, for the Christian church to ignore, euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin 
is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. And so this is an essential part of our story. Now, hopefully some of this is already, you heard some joy and some hope, you know, creation is good, Jesus is redemption on the other side. Um, I'm going to um, lead us into the Lord's table, reminding you in Romans 3, all of us are sinners, and every single part of us is compromised by sin, with one of my favorite lines from W.H. Alton, who was one of the great poets of the 20th century, and he's pointing out how Christianity, the gospel, is what really allows, this might seem strange, you know, I'm going to end here, is what really allows comedy to deliver. Comedy is a fruit of people who know the grace of God, and he's comparing the rise of comedy in Western culture to Jewish and Christian communities in it with the, the, the nature of comedy in the ancient world, in the pagan world. And I think some of this is coming back. I won't get off track too much. But W.H. Alton says this, comedy is not only possible within a Christian culture, but capable of a much greater breadth and depth than classical comedy. Greater in breadth, because in classical comedy, it's based upon a division of human beings into two classes. Those who have arete, virtue, excellence, and those who do not. And only the second class, the fools, the shameless rascals, the slaves, are fit subjects for jokes and comedy. But Christian comedy is based upon the belief that all men and all women are sinners. No one, therefore, whatever their rank or talents, can claim immunity from this comic exposure. And indeed, the more virtuous you are in the Christian story, the more virtuous a man or woman is, the more they realize how much they deserve to be unmasked. It's actually mostly a facade. None of us is actually all that virtuous. It is greater in depth because while classical comedy believes that rascals should get the drubbing they deserve, Christian comedy believes that we are forbidden to judge others and that it is our, our duty to forgive one another. In classical comedy, the characters are exposed and punished. And here is a great line. And when the curtain falls at the end of the play, the audience is laughing and those on stage are in tears. In Christian comedy, all of the characters are exposed and all of them are forgiven. And when the curtain falls, the audience and the characters are laughing together. And I would encourage you to see how that is connected to the universality of sin and the universality of God's love and grace in the gospel. And so when we do the Lord's table, which we do right now, um, it is good to always remember that Judas and Peter were at the table that night, and they were both losers who had, like Francis Buckford said, a human propensity to F things up in Jesus' love. Any irony or any sarcasm looked at them and said, friend, this is for you. Because it's for all of us. And if you look at Judas, you're like, oh, what, what an idiot. You don't understand yourself. You look at Peter, and, and you judge his responses. You're supposed to see yourself in that. Um, Rowan Williams has the most profound thing. I, I've probably said it six or eight times in the last couple of years since I became pastor here at this moment. Rowan Williams says the most profound thing I've ever heard about the Lord's table, I'll just say now, is that in spite of everything, God desires our company. In spite of everything, God desires our company. If you don't know your sin or God's grace, it's the moment that will be obscure to you. But if you know that you are a sinner, and if you know that God loves you in Christ and has died for you, then I encourage you to eat and drink with us in joy. Because this is a comedy, not a tragedy.